Welcome to the Life and Language podcast. I'm Michaela Marduk. I'm a linguist. I'm interested in how we use language to tell the stories and create the narratives that shape our society, our culture, and our reality. In today's show, I'm looking at water stories. I want to find out more about water in stories, and in particular, in fiction for children and young people. Fiction is never just fiction, though. It is a way of looking at the world. It's about thinking through what matters to us and about imagining different realities. To talk about water stories, I've got the great pleasure to welcome the wonderful Sita Brahmachari. Sita is a writer. She writes fiction for children and young adults. With her first book, Artichoke Hearts, published in 2011, Sita won the Waterstone Prize that year. Since then, she's gone on to win quite a few other awards now. You might also know her from this year's World Book Day, as her story, The River Whale, was a World Book Day book. So, fantastic to have you here, Sita. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Before we get to water in fiction, I'd like to know a bit about how you got into writing in the first place, because becoming a famous award-winning author is something that many children and young people will dream of. So what was your journey to become a writer? Wow, it's always, it's always really difficult as a writer to answer this question because actually there isn't, you know, when you, when you structure a story, there is this, you know, this really sort of layered and beautiful process that's all joined up and you know it's lovely to offer the reader this this threaded experience for the characters but of course real life isn't quite like that as a Not child quite. growing up in the lake district I was a real daydreamer and a doodler and um and I used to spend a lot of time sort of sitting by the lakes and the rivers making up stories. I wasn't the best at reading at school um, but I was very into my own kind of imaginary world and the symbolic world and nature was so much a part of that and I remember one day as a child um, my, my family described me as having gone missing for the whole day and what I had done is I had sort of sat in the hollow of a tree by the river Eden and just got lulled into the water music of the river and been writing stories and doodling and drawing pictures and they found me curled up in that you know as the as the night fell um, because I, I just found water to be such an amazing inspiration for me um, I didn't actually so I've been writing stories since I was a child um, but I didn't think of myself as an author and uh, I didn't even think that what I was doing was kind of the a part of English literature in school or anything like that. I found it very separate from the work that I studied at school. I think partly because I didn't find the kind of stories in books where you know, my wider diaspora family were represented. So, in, so we'd be in the Lake District with my mum's family, my mum's from there, and then my dad's from India and um, he's passed away now, but we used to uh, occasionally go to India or have family visiting. And I had this whole extraordinary diaspora of, of stories and landscapes in my mind. And I just used to put them down in stories. It wasn't until, well, I was nearly 40 when I wrote Artichoke Hearts that I actually started showing these stories to the world. And then some of the stories um, from in Jasmine Skies, for example, there's a little scene by the River Hooghly in Calcutta. Um, which is literally taken out of my own 12-year-old travel journal when I was a child. So, so yeah, I've been writing stories for so long, but publishing stories um, for 10 years. And people say, how have you written all of these stories? And the truth of the matter is that I've been writing these stories since I was a child. So it's really, you know, the fact that you also write about water, then it's really connected to how you've grown up, what you've experienced yourself. That is quite amazing because I was wondering, you know, you have quite a few titles where water is already very clear. So there isn't just the river whale, but there's also when secrets set sail, where the river runs gold. And you think, where does this connection come from? So there's really a threat running through these, isn't there? It's so, so interesting. And sometimes you're not even conscious as a writer. Of, I mean, I see that collection and I saw them together and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm writing about water so much. And then of course, I remembered that the very first piece, so I used to work in theater doing education and community work with young people. 
my work's always been about profiling young people's voices and getting them to understand the power of expressing yourself through the arts, whether that be writing or art or dancing or music. These are all in my stories. And, and there was a certain point after I'd done a big project with the Royal Shakespeare Company around Midnight's Children, where I decided that I was going to start to write for myself. And, um, and I did a piece of theatre for the London International Festival of Theatre, and it was at the Oxo Tower along the River Thames. And they said, write about whatever you want to write about. Write about why you do the things you do. So at that point, it was mostly working in community and developing stories. And I wrote a, a performance piece. I was heavily pregnant with my third child. And I, and, and I wrote a performance piece, which I stepped into myself, which was called Walk Along a River With Me. And it was joining all the rivers that connected our diaspora family from around the world, from the River Eden to the Hoogly to the Orwell, I mean, and all of the journeys that had been taken along rivers that connected us. And I performed it, which is unusual for me because I haven't, I've never done that. And it had a huge floating picture frame um, in, in, in the scene. And my, my, child, my younger children were making sand pictures uh, in front of the of the storytelling frame and at one point in the story I stepped over this frame and I think it was for me uh, the symbolic moment where I decided that I was going to be a storyteller and that was very much connected with the River Thames and flowing out of that to all the rivers that connected our family around the world. So you really so, got so yeah. you really got to to storytelling through theater so theater was first for you before you then got to the stories wow that that's amazing yes. yeah <laughs> and you know what I also like about this you know listening to you how you got to this point it's it's so exciting to hear how real life is connected to the stories and to the experimenting and to all of it and your books are such good examples that illustrate how fiction and storytelling is never just fiction so in several of your stories and that's the point that really drew, drew me in is you've got these environmental issues that play a part so stories that raise awareness of what's going on with nature and the environment so you talk about pollution environmental protection and climate chaos or all, all this is, is part of the themes that you have and then there's especially where the river runs gold this is even a near dystopian um, fiction in this regard. Do you think about the power that these stories might have to impact behaviors? Do you aim to write in such a way that people might change what they do in real life? So it's such an interesting question. I think, you know, for me, I am consumed by um, the symbolic world of my child characters, first and foremost. And so I always say that I don't write for children, I write into childhood. And when I wrote my first novel, Artichoke Hearts, I just wrote it through the perspective of a child, because I think, you know, if the children are, I mean, literally children are the evolution of us in the world. And so for me, the most important voice to be exploring was children's voices in our world today. And so what I do is I tend to find a character that I kind of layer and uh, get to know and, and, and for some reason I see something in that character that I want to, I have questions about. And then I, I sort of attach myself to the symbolic world of those characters. So say if it was a little seater, it would be the River Eden in the Lake District or the River Ganges or whatever. Um, and then the, the children in the book, they take me into the challenges that they face in the world. And so because they are living in today's world, it takes them into the pollution of rivers, you know, the air that they're breathing, you know, the case that was recently had in London where the mother mm -hmm. has lost her child because the child couldn't breathe the air and, mm -hmm. and she's taken a legal case. So it takes my characters into the world in which they are living and the world in which they living, are living forms their imagination in the same way that it does mine. And so quite naturally, for example, in Tender Earth, one of my stories that I wrote several years ago, and it is a tender earth on which all of our children are walking. It, it's, um, it can be empathetic, but it, it can also feel bruised and difficult. And so in that story, um, which I was you know, very honored, that it was honored by the International Board of Books for Young People as a book that can help young people navigate 
these, these times in which their human rights are very often being deprived them, whether that be through, um, as we're seeing in COP26 now, you know, young people literally going to speak to power to say, where is our future? Where is our future? The air we breathe, the waters, the rivers, the climate chaos. You know, they are literally doing that in the real world. And therefore, for me, not to write into those things and into those times. And, and um, Tender Earth was, was really speaking about the rise in racism and reflecting back to the way in which kinder transport refugees like Lord Alf Dubbs in Parliament were welcomed in this country in comparison to the way in which child refugees are being suggested under the new plan from the Home Office that children will be turned away in boats on our shores, on our waters. You know, as a writer who, as, as all writers and all artists do, the iconography of our time becomes deeply embedded into your storytelling. And so there is no way. And so people, people have often said to me, oh, you, you, you talk about so many things in your books and yet we don't see them as issue books. And just like, well, I don't see my life as an issue life. I see my life as, as the things that are presented to me and the way that I try to move through it. And it feels like my work as a storyteller for children is to find stories that can help them navigate these times. And that is probably also the really important bit here, because if the stories are too alien, too otherworldly, then they don't achieve anything because then they're too far away. Then you don't see the need to actually act or to think about it because it just isn't close enough to real life. And I think that that's this interesting bit between fiction and the real world and fiction never really just being fictional by itself there's always something that really connects to us because ultimately we also use the same language so the language that we use in fiction writing is the same language we use to talk about the real world we just tend to put it together somehow differently and and um, I wanted to ask you a, a few questions about the language that you use as well because in my own research I've been working quite a lot on 19th century children's fiction, which is quite a different period from the stories that your stories are set in. Um, and I use computer assisted methods so that I can find words and patterns that are frequent across a number of books. So looking at such patterns, words and phraseology in the 19th century in children's literature, when you look at water there, what you get is people use water to wash with, it is about water to drink, is water is used to refer to places. So you talk about across the water or something is happening by the water. And, it, and since we've got children's stories, it's also a lot about falling into the water, you, you know, the kind of things children get up to. Now, I haven't looked at contemporary children's fiction on that topic yet, but what do you think are the patterns or phrases that today are getting increasingly frequent? And maybe also, have you noticed anything in your own writing, words and phrases that you use frequently? I mean, the difficult thing is we are not aware necessarily of how we use language, but what is your feeling? Are there any words that you think are particularly suited? Have you got some well, examples? I, I was so fascinated by this myself when you said it, and I was thinking, wow, how exciting if someone would like go through go through these stories that I've told it, and actually, because it's such a it is such a psychological journey writing, and so I had a quick look, and the words that kept coming to me through the different books were surfacing. So it's, it's, it's happening in the moment, um, diving. Um, so again, there are children who are active and choosing to, to, um, to move through water, um, shimmering. So I spend a lot of time uh, trying to describe the surface of the water and its impact on mental health. Oh, shimmering. Oh, can, can you tell us a bit more about this? That is exciting, shimmering. So shimmering, shimmering. So this, the children in Where the River Runs Gold have been, have been um, deprived of access to nature. And there's a certain point in the book where they've been to this terrible, uh, the bees in the land appear to have disappeared. Um, the children go into some kind of 
work camp to pollinate the crops because um, there isn't enough food in the land. And they escape from this terrible draconian place, which is like a sort of concentration camp, really. And they escape from this place and they, they arrive at their first sighting of a river. And um, it's, just, it's just like some kind of magical um, adventure. Um, and so I thought I'd just read you a tiny little bit. Of oh, that. yes, absolutely. Go okay, ahead. so it's chapter 29. And this is Shifa and her brother um, who have escaped um, the camp and now are on the river Ore. After a while, the sandy banks of the Ore turned to shingle and the boulders to rock escarpments. The mountain Shifa had seen from the survivor tree came looming closer. The rocky banks were becoming too large and slippery to climb over. As they picked their way between the rocks, a green slimy creature leapt from beneath a large leaf. Shifa jumped sideways, grazing her knee, but Tamba seemed more amused than alarmed and began copying its guttural croak. Frog, Tamba laughed. One like that's on my river page with your hair in it. Want to see? I forgot about that, Shifa said. Their birthday seemed like light years ago. Not now, Temba, Lucas snapped. It's getting too steep to stay on the river's edge. We'll have to walk further inland. Luke climbed up the rocky bank, setting off at marching pace across a wide open meadow. Shifa got the impression that he was irritated by her as, tem as, as by Temba. Now forced by the terrain to walk in the open land above the river, Shifa saw Luca's back tense and his pace quicken. She felt exposed too, her eyes constantly scanning in an arc, alert for strangers or hunters. What would they do with us if they caught us now? Shifa dreaded to think. Still, when she spotted a few red poppies fluttering in the long grass, she paused, bent down to pick one up and placed it in her seed packet for luck, then blew it over the river. The seeds would spread. Oh, beautiful, amazing. So, so I was, I, when I was reading, when I was thought about that passage, I thought it's about the river and also its relationship to the land. And it's about how in the flow of the river, there is always potential for me, um, that things can travel along that river. And as long as the river, as long as the river is, is allowed to live. I mean, there was a point when, which was referenced in that book, where the, and in the River Whale, my World Book Day story, where, where the River Thames was declared dead. And now it is living again. And, you know, the sea life is coming back and the, and the plant life is coming back. And it's more, it's, bring, it's, it's more species are returning. And the children are really, really aware of the potential of regeneration in water. And so for me, it's, um, it's both, you know, it's both very difficult to portray the pollution when, when um, Imtias, who's this very feisty character, decides to go diving under the river because a whale has appeared in the Thames, in the river whale. And she, she, she doesn't listen to anyone. She knows how to dive and she's going down there. And she sees a whale caught in this, this net of pollution with bottles and all the debris that London Londoners have placed in this river, um, polluting the life source. She looks the whale in the eye and she says, how can, you know, I see myself. So, um, so in water, I think I see this kind of profound reflection of what it is to be human and the bigger responsibility of being human. Um, beyond to each other, but to this, to to our fellow species on the planet, land, animal, and 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 um, plant life, and uh, and sea life. I think young people are very in contact with the idea of awe. So that um, you know, when secrets set sail, there's this you know there's these big epic moments where the characters kind of see creatures appearing like there's a whale that appears out of the Thames who's actually a grandmother so so the idea of reincarnation and the big questions that humans have always asked being very connected to nature and I remember when I went to the Lake District to launch my book Kite Spirit in which there was a mental health crisis at the beginning of the story and Kite's very best friend she dies by suicide at the beginning of this story so it's a, it's a novel for teenagers and Kite goes to the Lake District really to heal 
and there's huge amount of water in 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 this story um and there's a boy that's on this landscape called garth which is another way of describing a sheepfold and he's making stuff out of the landscape like he's picking up old clogs or he's picking up um you know um something that's been lost a piece of jewelry and he creates he creates sculptures within the kind of old bodies of sheep and in the story it's the year that the Horswater Dam has has um dried up which actually did happen mm. now keep in mind that my family on my mum's side used to farm the land which is now under the Horswater Dam mm. so this boy is making this sculpture and Kite who's the kind of quite feisty girl that is is in the land because she's the protagonist of the story She's like, what is the point of doing this kind of sculpture? What is the, what is the point of collecting these stuff together if is all that's going to happen is when the rain comes, the dam is going to be flooded? And he said, the point is to watch it, to build it and to watch how it floats because every one of those pieces will float somewhere else and it will be found in another landscape. And for me, that is a really big, big metaphor um, of of my storytelling um and um he says together they placed all the owl bones deep into the sheep's belly and sealed them in with slates as garth worked he seemed to forget that the rain was falling do you think you can find a place for this kite took the little box from her pocket she lifted out the reed and handed it to garth he turned it over in his hands with great care just as he had in her dream dawn's golden reed she whispered Garth lodged it firmly among the slates, stones and bones of his sculpture. When the reservoir filled and the sheep was underwater, maybe all these tiny shards of history would float away from the sculpture, the trout that Seth had caught for Jack, Agnes's owl bones and Dawn's music. They were all now part of the story of this place. Yeah, what you mentioned there about metaphors as well, or bringing in metaphors, that, that's another really exciting topic in the sense of water is very concrete but in literature we always had metaphorical approaches to water and um, that's something maybe we can draw uh, draw on today when we really need to look at the problems that we have in the world and think about how central wa central water has always been to understand the big questions of society and humanity and um, talking about metaphorical language um, you also do write poetry don't you so you know you've got very many skills so it's not just theater and novels and it's also poetry do you think you also have a poem for us that you could read yeah i do i i have um i have a poem which is um in a collection called medusa and her sisters um, um, which is the initiative of uh, Natalie Syrett, who is an artist and poet who's actually um, illustrated my next novel, When Shadows Fall. What she did is she took the idea, the myths of Medusa and her sisters, and she painted um, a painting and asked each of the poets or writers to respond to the painting. And my painting is called Fishtail Gorgon and the Handkerchief Tree Too, and it shows a mermaid who is between land and sea, between sea and the tree. And I wrote this story and it preceded uh, when the novel, When Secrets Set Sail. Handkerchief Sail. Spokes slow, hands frozen to handlebars. Your handkerchief still clutched in my palm. I lead my bike against our wind-worn boat bow to the waves, still clinging to blue. Listen for your voice in the wind's racket till I find you stripped and raw. I shed my clothes, the sail of tears embroidered with your name, once free. Pick a painted path over flints, no grace. Goose-pimpled flesh wobbles, seagulls laugh. Your broad smile imprints my skin, brings heat. I walk straight in, dive under. Time to tell a new tale, start a new story. Let the wave song take you, push through the undertow, gulp life, watch the surface arise and fall, arise and fall, arise.
is that picture you responded to is that one in color or is that black and white they're i was all just black wondering and white etchings all of them or oh, they're all they're all black and white drawings line drawings yeah yeah because i was wondering <laughs> listening to how you chose the language how how did this feel for you writing in response to an image is that very different from writing in response to the experiences that you had before in your stories i'm always i'm always writing in response to image um so i always see my stories first through symbol um so i, I sort of have this so with artichoke hearts for example it was the layers of the heart um the titles of my books are you know tender earth um when secrets set sail i saw the sail of this epic ship um, I, i see the symbols and then the characters kind of become attached to those symbols so it's very it's very extraordinary for me to work with amazing illustrators and i've worked i've worked for the last well over a decade with jane ray the illustrator who's illustrated a number of my stories corey's rock set on orkney and worry angels and now swallows kiss which was the which was the welcome story for little amal the enormous puppet uh, at the south bank recently um and then and then more recently natalie who illustrated that poem and my story when shadows fall so i i tend to work in this and and the arrival by sean tan i adapted that for theater and that is is a graphic novel with images and i i brought a very sparse text to that with circus artists with musicians with writers so you say oh you've written in many different mediums but i think you know writing is about expression and the arts are about expression and for me collaborating with artists and designers is is a really powerful thing to do so in when shadows fall as in as in swallows kiss i would bring imagery uh, in word to the illustrator and they would present an image and if the image spoke i would strip the words away um so so for me you know it's it's all part of the storytelling and and there are moments when what cannot be said in words is said in picture it's an exciting way of this joint meaning making really creating meaning together and not just yeah doing it as one person but it's actually a community effort in this case you and your illustrator but in the world out there we create meaning together and the stories help us with this as well um i want to get back to something you said before because you mentioned um well-being already and i think that that is an important topic to talk about because i am aware that um you um are a writer of a writer in residence at the islington center for refugees and migrants and there i think well-being plays an important role in the way you work with the people there. Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of work and what you do and how you use fiction and poetry to work with people there? Yeah, poetry has become the, in terms of words, poetry has become the holding form for um, us to express ourselves together um, in, in, in the art and writing class. So uh, I work with Jane Ray and also more recently, Ros Asquith, um, and we, we have what we call a storytelling half that we gather around. Now it's on Zoom, over lockdown it's been on Zoom, but it was at the actual center. And, um, and we'll bring a stimulus, and that stimulus quite often is an idea like rivers. Um, and we, we might look at some poetry um, uh, around, around that, and people can you know, look at the language and learn the language of that, and, but then they respond to it. And of course, you, you've got people from all around the world responding to what a river means to them. And there, there you find, you know, what we're seeing at COP26, how so many refugee people are displaced because of environmental damage of one kind or another, or greed. Um, and, and so we start to build a new piece of writing in, in the form of a poem. And my work is to kind of hold it, and to, but to try to keep what is said as true as possible to um, people's, people's wish to express something. I'm going to give you an example because it can seem a little bit esoteric, but it isn't at all. Um, 
one of our members uh, wrote a poem in lockdown and she was sent art materials. Um, and so she would bring pictures from the art to the virtual hearth and show us. And quite often it was flowers or it was trees or it was rivers or she'd been able to go out for walks. So it was her natural world around her in London. Sometimes it was reflecting on the rivers and the, the landscape that she'd left behind in the Congo. And, um, and she wrote, um, you know, with, with our kind of structuring, helping form, she wrote a poem and it, and it goes like, it, there, is a, there is a song called The River Is Flowing. I don't know if you know it, but it goes, the river is flowing, flowing and growing. The river is flowing down to the sea. It goes like that. So I took the kind of, um, the, 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 the song rhythms and also the tune and I gave those to her. And she came back with, in lockdown, I have painted, planted and painted. In lockdown, I have painted my way back to spring. In the garden of my mind, I have survived. So that's what we do. It's a kind of, and actually that's what all storytellers do. It's a holding place to hold some of the things that we can find too unwieldy and too frightening and too um, awesome, sometimes in a very positive way, to, to, to express as human beings in our kind of everyday forms. And we're sort of all artists are kind of reaching um, to get a little bit more, um, to lean in to the wonders of the world, I suppose, in one mm. way or another. And I just found that so, I find it so moving you know, with the greeting of little Amal at the South Bank Centre the other day with our story Swallows Kiss, in which um, in the story, children place their wishes for refugee children on the wings of these birds. And we had the performance of Swallows Kiss in, in, the, in the South Bank in the Claw Ballroom. And then little Amal arrived, this huge puppet who's walked from Syria with Good Chance Theatre into the space. And we were able to, the children who had made these wish birds um, were able to fly their own wishes to this giant wish bird that we gave to little Amal. Um, so again, you know, through you know, the birds that live on the river, through and the seas, these migratory um, stories um, take us far beyond the kind of um, constraints or cages that people and children in the real world have been placed in. And, um, you know, and that children are very aware of seeing these things on the news, hearing about them in the newspaper, you know, hearing, um, you know, plans of children to be turned away at sea. I mean, you know, I often, one, in one of my stories, a young refugee called Amir and George, a young refugee boy meets the ghosts of George Orwell. And um, he ends up, his, his story is so profound and powerful that even though his English is not yet fluent, he ends up getting to the finals of the George Orwell public speaking competition, which is at Eton, where George Orwell went to school. And he gets onto the stage and he says, I can't speak here, this is not my country. He's never lived in the countryside before. He's never, he says, I'm in Harry Potter school because he doesn't recognize this place. And so he goes into a little antechamber of a sort of theater room and in and behind him in a seat as he looks through the mirror is George Orwell sitting there and he's got a notebook and he's, he goes to turn around and reflection George says don't turn around please speak into the mirror please speak I only came to hear you speak and I think I wrote that story with a very large question in my mind about what it means to be a storyteller into childhood in these times. And, um, and that's the story that came to me because in a way, I think that these stories must be recorded in whatever imaginative way that you find to do it. It's really, I mean, in the future, I hope as you are doing that people will look at historical documents, they'll look at law and they will also look at storytelling. Mm. Absolutely. This is so important. And um, on that, I had a question I wanted to ask you as well. When you work with uh, children and refugees and migrants, 
have you got any examples of particular differences or attitudes in how people experience water or what water means for them across different cultures and in different languages and uh, because that is so interesting also to, to then think about you know how we tackle the water crisis that is something that people across different nations have to do together so we need to find a way of creating shared stories and not just different views of the world and I was wondering have you learned anything from that experience that might be useful for us in this way so there was there was a lovely story so you know at the refugee center quite often we do storytelling and so people just tell a story from their country so there was a there was a story about a woman that was going to the well and sometimes because people's english is is you know developing um, it's difficult to know whether it's a kind of classical story from their, their home country that they were told as a child. And sometimes people don't know where stories come from. They just, it's sort of in them. Anyway, this woman told a story and it was just as if we were transported there because it was like this, the woman went to the well, she spent a long time going to the well and she had this pot and the pot was cracked. And, and as she was going to, coming home from the well, the water was leaking out of the pot. And when she came back to her village, she got told off because she didn't have all the water that she needed. So she had to go back. And, but every time she would come back, the pot would crack and, and, and it would leak things along the way. And every time she'd get back, she would be told off for not having enough water. And she couldn't understand why it was always her pot that was cracking. <laughs> anyway, one day she walked to the well and the landscape had changed because the land that had been watered along the way had so many beautiful wildflowers and food on it. And so as well, she was able to go back to the well and get her half pot of water, which was just enough for her family. Um, but she was also to able to collect the seeds and the herbs and the food that she was had watered and nurtured along the way and bring them back to the village. And the village never complained about her cracked pot anymore. Mm. That's a beautiful story. And that was one that uh, was told in this. That was book. told. That was one of the stories that was told. And um, and then I, I placed uh, an element of that story in my novel, Worry and Angels. Um, there's, a, there's a telling of that story in that novel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sticking a little bit with um, how we can connect storytelling and the real world again is um, I, I'd like to make a connection to the episode on life and language that we had last week, because there um, we also dealt with environmental problems and real world issues. Um, there I talked to Stefan Kuhr, so he really doesn't have anything at all to do with fiction and literature. So he runs a textile manufacturing business. And what we talked about was sustainability, but more from a business kind of approach. Um, and his business is what he calls, uh, or what is called a green business. It's all about repurposing, reusing, upcycling. So using materials that otherwise would be chucked away. So some of the things he upcycles is decommissioned fire hose. So, and I thought, oh, there's a connection to water, isn't there? So it's fire hose from the California fires. And um, th then he turns this into bags or purses. And he talks about products with a heroic past so I immediately thought about children's books and maybe an illustrated one with firemen and all that where the fire hose from the California fires gets a new life and so on do you think there is a role for writers in business to provide consultancy to people in business and say look the way you think about the world you really need to think about this more in terms of a story for people to understand why it is important to recycle and to not chuck stuff away and um, is there something that you could imagine could be done so I, I think many many things can be done and I think that create you know creative creatives are essential in any kind of organization any business whatever it might be um, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, the, the person that you're talking about I'm, reminds me a lot of the character of Nabil in Where the River Runs Gold, who, who collects um, pieces from the old times and, and builds sculptures out of them. And of course, one of the things that in the lands becomes so valuable is the memory of bees because bees have been lost. So the whole city of Kairos City is premised on beehives and cones and um, anything to do with bees because the bees are lost becomes the architecture of the city. Um, so 
so yes, I mean, the natural world then becomes the driver, the, the memory of the natural world becomes the driver for the industry in the city. And so um, the, the, um, the panels of this enormous beehive, which is the train station, are all made of sol solaminar, which is a product that I made up. I made up loads of products in the book. The, the children have feet skins, which are um, shoes which um, can be used and breathed with in any kind of terrain. So they can be they can be used as flippers, but they can also be on land. So so obviously I was exploring this whole kind of business thing. But bigger than that, I think in in the COVID um, crisis, we have literally seen before our eyes on the television screens how the importance of scientists being able to tell a narrative. Now, the narrative of COVID, the narrative of who is safe, who is not safe, we've seen how it's played out. We see how confusion also plays out and the impacts that it can have on people, messaging. And I think artists have shown themselves and people who are good communicators and in general storytellers are attempting to tell a story clearly. And I think we have now seen that you can be the most extraordinary scientist in the world, but if you cannot find a way to convey your story and put it out there, it can literally, it can lead to the death of millions of people. Yeah, I couldn't um, agree more. So, could so agree yeah, more. we have an example right before us. And I really do hope that more artists, I mean, places like the Wellcome Trust are very interested in this idea. And, um, and I think it's going to be the narrative going forward for, for many new businesses are going to understand that. And the, and the human cost of not engaging with empathy with, with fellow human beings who are within your care in an institute, at any kind of institution is too great. It's too, it's too great not to, to become metaphysical people again. Yeah. We, we used to be able to be we used to be able to be good at the sciences and the arts, and we all used to be able to be useful in, in, in one time um, as kind of rounded human beings. And I think to do with education systems or whatever, you know, when I was at school, oh, well, you're good at the arts, so perhaps you'll drop biology or perhaps you'll drop. And so- Absolutely no, not. You need to keep biology and you need to keep the arts and you need to do it together. <laughs> well, do you, know, do you know, I learned more biology, right? And more biology and more science writing Where the River Runs Gold than I've learned in my lifetime. And I, I was carrying this legacy, well, how can I write this book? I'm not a scientist. And I just thought, you know what? Just learn about it. It's my planet too. And, um, and so I think there's a lot of changes that need to happen about how we live in the world. I mean, if we are going to insulate our properties, if we are going to survive as human beings on this planet, if we are going to ensure that the, you know, the rivers aren't polluted and that you know, we're living on safe land that isn't flooded, we're all going to have to be engaged in science and we're all going to be, have to be engaged in the arts and communication. Yeah, and the thing you were saying about, uh, you know, not being engaged in empathy, what is happening there if this doesn't take place is basically that people have separate stories, stories that don't connect, that are not a joined up narrative. Everyone is in their own world and just looks at their piece of it and it just doesn't come together. And therefore, it's so important that we have these joint stories, the narratives we all engage in. So, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. This is um, such a powerful statement here. Yes, <laughs> yeah. no borders in the sea. I'm afraid there are certain places that you cannot, you cannot build borders because the imagination is too strong to allow it to happen. And I think, you know, when, when human beings get to a point of thinking that they might build borders in the sea, then it is time for storytellers to take over. <laughs> mm, yes, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> Since we both agree how important it is to have enough writers and people who can think creatively and who can imagine realities, can you maybe share some tips and give some advice? Because we might have quite a few young people or parents listening who've got young people at home who want to become writers. Can you give them any advice what they could do, how they could get on the way, you know, so that yes. they get their journey to becoming an award winning um, author? Well, I would say I would say I don't recognize myself. I recognize myself as somebody that writes stories. 
and and if you can tell somebody else's story you can become a writer and a storyteller and what one of the things I would say is I love my notebooks I'm always doodling and daydreaming like my characters in my stories and I never throw things out so some of the things that I've got in my stories now in my notebooks I collected like stamps from letters that I sent to my cousin in India they're kind of like collections so if you like collecting like Garth with his you know sculpture if you like collecting things and bringing things together just for the sake of it you know if you think you've got a random mind that kind of you know if you wake up in the morning and you think I better not tell anyone else about my dreams because that was so random then what you have is you have this kind of vast planet on your head that is open to sort of processing the symbols of the universe and and, and that will make, make sure that you've got loads and loads of questions in your mind all your life. And really, writing is a way of you have a question and you start to explore it. And then because you're exploring it, you're starting to learn. So it's kind of collecting. Um, so what I would suggest you do is do it. Don't go, I, will, I want to be a writer one day. No, just do it. And writing can be collecting stuff, collecting ideas, collecting something that someone said to you once that somehow resonates, your favorite piece of music, it can all be part of the process of writing. And at a certain point, you'll get to a tipping point. You'll go, actually, I've got a story here, which is about environmental protection, set in this slightly strange world. And the people who can save this world are the ancestors of the Syrian refugees. And then that becomes your story. But you've only got that bit of your story by collecting all of these other pieces. And also going out into the world and experiencing things for yourself, um, sometimes succeeding, sometimes not, not succeeding in your aim. All of it is valuable, all of it. And that's why I kind of it's fantastic that my books have won awards and I'm incredibly grateful for that because it means that they're read by more people. But actually you write because you want to express something. So if you've ever had that feeling of, actually no one understands how it is to be me at this moment in the world as it is. And like my teenage children at some point slammed a door and then went and wrote a song or something like that. I think good, because that is you saying, I want to express my voice in the world. And, you know, there's that thing about seven stories that there are only kind of seven kind of stories. So you might say, well, what's the point in me writing a story about environmental protection? Because, oh, Sita Brahmachari did that one about the bees or, 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 or Nicola Penfold wrote, wrote this book, which was um, about the sea and living at sea. No, because it's about the, your voice in the world and what you can bring. Um, and I think your identity and your history and your diaspora journeys um, across lands, you're delving into your own um, migratory paths is all really a part of you becoming a storyteller. And I didn't realize that when I was a child. I didn't realize that those amazing pieces that I had could turn me into a storyteller because I wasn't seeing the representation in literature. And you now, you young, young people writing to the world, are seeing many more examples of people writing stories from many different perspectives. And I think that should be an invitation for you to, to, to go sailing in your imagination and write some stories. Another point I find really very inspirational about your own story as well as you mentioned before that, yeah, what did you say, you were 40 or so when you wrote your first story and I think that also says something in the sense of it is never you know it, you can't say it's the right moment or you need to do it now or it might be too late and I have to do other things you just have to do it and it, it will be the right moment as soon as you start doing it and I find that's really inspirational <laughs> um, you also mentioned identity and I'd like to come back to identity you know in a way because um, another topic I've done research on is gender in children's fiction. So especially in 19th century fiction, with a colleague, we looked at how male and female characters have different roles in society. So what women were allowed to do or couldn't do in the 19th century and the language that is used to describe them. In which way do you think about gender and diversity in the stories that you write? I mean, I just, I think it, for me, it comes out of, you know, really longing to see representations of, you know, uh, when I was, when I was growing up, I really wanted to see like a contemporary um, 
local family which had you know um sort of this broad diaspora heritage which was like ours i really wanted i, I was looking for um girl protagonists in my stories who who were contemporary and didn't necessarily I mean we we didn't have a whole range of children's and young adult books when I was growing up so we moved from you know say Alice in Wonderland or Beatrix Potter or whatever to to um you know Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or whatever and I was very keen to read those women authors um, but I was also looking for I was I would have liked to find some contemporary girl characters in my stories. I'm, you know, as I've, you know, you can't do everything in in one book, and you, nor should you try to. So you 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 get confined by the world of your characters within your story, and you work within the, that frame. But I think if people look at the range of my stories, they will see very many representations of um, young people in my stories who are seeking to escape the kind of social um, frames that are placed around them that are confining. And so I have many different kinds of families in my stories. So, you know, the children in my families are often brought up, sometimes they're brought up by two dads, for example. Um, so, um, some, for example, Kite, when she goes up to the Lake District, um, she goes with her father. Um, because I, I'm, 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 in, I'm interested in different kind of relationships and how people are formed in different ways by the nature of their relationships. I didn't realise when I wrote Artichoke Hearts that it was, it was rare to see so many girl protagonists in stories. I just thought, well, of course, why wouldn't there be? Yeah, why <laughs> um, wouldn't there be? But yes. <laughs> <laughs> but equally, um, I also didn't realise when it was, when it was kind of chosen as, I don't know, there was some Guardian thing, which was um, that Artichoke Hearts was given an award that it was one of the top 50 diverse books since the 1950s. I hadn't even thought about it. It was just that, why wouldn't you populate your books with the people who live on your planet and the diaspora journeys that they've taken and why they're here? And, you know, my I have children, well, now they're 25 down to 16, but for three children. And, 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 you know, why would you write char child characters in, in a contemporary setting who, who were not representative of the society you'd live in? It would almost feel an odd thing to do, not to do that. But I was quite shocked to see that it was seen to be quite an unusual thing. So in my stories now, I have, you know, chill, you know, Aisha, for example, in, um, in Red Leaves, she is um, a Somali refugee survivor. She becomes one of the protagonists. Um, I have, you know, the, uh, two of my favorite older characters in my books are Mr. and Mrs. Kelsey, who, who run the shop in that story, who Kelsey is the Sikh um, practice of giving to community and charity. And um, they, they really are holding up that whole area in that story. So I have, I have characters from so many different walks of life who actually, um, even in historical novels, like, for example, um, or no, not historical novels, but when children find out about their history, like in When Secrets Set Sail, and they discover the story of the Indian Ayers who lived in Hackney and looked after the British children and came on these long ship journeys from India. Um, you know, we've, we've always migrated as human beings. We've always, um, in Cory's Rock, there's the archaeological site, Okhnavar, and there's pieces from all over the planet in this in this. Scottish landscape. So I'm just, for me, it's part of the excavation of storytelling to represent many diverse aspects of being human. And, um, and I think I don't want to ever, I don't want ever to present stereotypes. And I'm just giving, gonna give you one funny example from, um, from my latest novel, When Shadows Fall is there's two, so unusually for me, the, uh, the main narrator in that book is Kai, who's a young 19 year old boy. And, um, and his friend Omid also um, identifies as boy. And then there's, there's Orla, who, and they grow up all together uh, from nursery up to 19. And Orla and Kai have always been a bit in love with each other, but they don't really know what love means going from friendship to more romantic love and and they you know like all teenagers they kind of try out different things and at a certain point and Kai is the main narrator of the story and 
Kai has it in his mind that it's him and Orla, it's going to be him and Orla, and there's this kind of love triangle in the story between this other boy, Zach, and they kind of fall out about it anyway. And Orla actually goes off on this camp and she falls in love with another girl. And, and she comes back and she's, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's changed, she looks different, she's changed her style. And, um, and Kai is always trying to interpret everything about, interpret things about her. And it was very interesting me doing this because usually it's the girl that is the main protagonist speaking. And I had to do this other thing because I had the boy who was speaking and she just speaks to him and she cuts through the narrative of the, the story. And she says, it's not all about how you see the world. I can be whoever I want to be. And if I'm in love with her, then I'm in love with her. And, he, and he's sort of asking her, well, does that mean you're gay? And she says, it means I'm in love with her. And <laughs> <laughs> so the character, young characters in my book are very free to speak. And I think what I want to do with my characters in terms of gender, in terms of diversity, in terms of their chosen identities, um, as, well as, as, as well as any identities that society wants to try and kind of frame them with, is that I always want to create a space where they are free to become who they want to be. And fiction is a really important space for that because um, children need to experience and see what is possible. And once they've got that, they can do something with it. So it's, so it's really important to have that in the books. Absolutely. Um, there is, um, uh, I just wanted to quickly ask one other question because you mentioned your children a couple of times. Uh, and how is that when you write books for children and young adults? Have you got your own focus group at home? Do they read well, what you're doing? Do they give you feedback? Do they say, oh, I like this one, but not that one? Or how does it work? <laughs> so, um, so when I first started writing Artichoke Hearts, um, so the children in the book were the children in the book were older than my children so they weren't really kind of but they did eventually start to read my books they became kind of the readers and um, they did enjoy them there's what I've got one funny anecdote is that my daughter uh, Esha she um, read Jasmine Skies my second novel as an accelerated reading novel um, where they get tested on you know what they take in and she she knew that novel absolutely inside out because when I was writing it I was reading her the chapters mm. anyway she was absolutely livid when she came back from school and she got 99% and not 100% oh. on her accelerated reading because the question that was asked was such a bizarre obscure question and she said mum what's the answer I said I don't know I can't remember that was such a <laughs> she take that back to the teacher <laughs> So, it, um, you know, reading is not a memory test. It, it is about you really taking it in. And my recent novel, When Shadows Fall, my, all of my much later young adults, so my, my uh, son is 23 and my eldest daughter is 25, um, they've taken that book off because I think they see that it's more, this is more the territory that they're living in. It's close to the territory that they're living in now. Mm. Um, And my son, when I was, used to write, he used to say something like, mum, you've got that look on your face. And I'd be like, what, 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 what's the look? And he was like, like, you're really, really worried about something. What's going on? And he would ask me what was going on with the characters because he would know that I was trying to untangle something of the characters. And once he said, but mum, don't look so worried. They're not real. And, and I would say to him, yeah, they actually are real to me. They are real because in order for me to ask people to write the stories, I have to... I have to manifest the characters myself to, for them to become real. And yeah. actually the truth of the matter is because I've worked for all of my life really with young people, um, that there are you know, aspects of, of you know, the, the lived experience of people, not one individual, but many facets that end up being things that, that I'm wanting to express in, in these stories. So in a sense, they are real. Oh, they absolutely are. <laughs> As we're coming to the end of our time, there's one final question I'd like to ask you. If we look at the current political climate, and you already mentioned a few things that were getting quite political. Um, in the current political climate, arts and humanities subjects are given quite a bit of a hard time, aren't they? How can we use this idea of water stories to help show how the arts matter to society and maybe bring about some social change? 
Well, I think I think this the key to this answer is in communities coming together and communities of many different skill bases coming together to join to tell a narrative, which is in fact what's happening here. You know, it, it's I think we need to switch many things up in society. And I think the coming together of people from different skill bases to try to come to try to aim for a common goal. And obviously our common goal is pretty pressing in terms of water. It is the survival of the planet. So um, whoever we can get together to bring their skill, to dare, to dream, believe and imagine a, sustain, a, a future in which our children's dreams are nurtured and sustained, then we need to get together. That is a very, very good closing statement. Thank you, Sita, for this wonderful conversation. And uh, thank you to everyone who listened. Until the next show, listen out for the language in your life.